Hello, and welcome to our Back to Basics series podcast. Our speaker for today is Sudeep Mahapatra, who has been uh, working in the insolvency and bankruptcy space since 2016. 2016 being the cutoff date because that's when the law came about. Sudeep is a good friend of mine and also holds a title, which is partner at SNR Associates. And today's episode is going to be focused uh, on bid winning or bidding, which is what we hear in a lot of writing and literature when the IBC and its resolution is spoken about. So with that, I want to welcome Sadeep. And I want to start by asking you what is bidding and also how does the IBC sort of play into the factor of bidding? So firstly, uh, Ishana, thanks for having me over. Um, what is bidding under IBC? Um, when most people say uh, they are bidding or somebody is bidding under the IBC, what essentially it means is that they are preparing uh, a resolution plan, which they will then submit to the committee of creditors for um, it to consider. Uh, what is a resolution plan? A resolution plan is essentially a document which says that, uh, look, here is the way in which I propose to turn around this company, which is under insolvency, the corporate debtor. Um, here is my plan um, to on how I'm going to deal with all the existing creditors. Here is my proposal for all the other stakeholders, which is the employees, shareholders. Um, here is the way I'm going to sort of implement this plan. And here are the, all the other terms and conditions um, which um, are associated with, with my proposal. So you have this one document, which is called the resolution plan. And that's what a quote-unquote bidder who on, in IVC is called a resolution applicant. Um, bidder is, is more of an emanator. Um, the technical term under IVC is resolution applicant. That's where a resolution applicant submits a resolution plan, which is then considered by um, the COC. And we'll talk about that. We can talk about that a bit uh, more down the road. And once this, depending on whichever plan the COC likes the best, um, they approve it. And then it goes to NCLT for approval. And once the NCLT approves it, um, it can then be implemented. So that is, in a nutshell, bidding under the uh, IBC, which is that submitting a resolution plan uh, for the creditors, the committee of creditors to consider, and then eventually, if they like it, then for the NCLT to approve. Um, now, why is bidding uh, under the IBC um, interesting or, or different from pre-IBC? Um, is that, you know, and, and you have to go back a little here and look at Indian m and in general. Uh, there are not too many instances in India where uh, you can do hostile transactions. So unlike in the US where even if the management doesn't want to sort of, um, you know, have a particular acquirer acquire the company, the acquirer, because the shareholding is sort of diverse, can still make for an offer and whether the management likes it or not, they can sort of acquire the company. In India, that hasn't happened too often. Hostile m and doesn't happen. So... Uh, even if the company is doing um, is not doing well, um, 
if the management and the promoters are um, sort of resistant to selling the company, um, there are not, it's not, there's not a huge market uh, for hostile MN in India. So there is, that's one context. The other thing is that often the problem with businesses is um, that the business itself is doing well, but the debt that uh, that business has is uh, not sustainable. So what do you mean by, you know, unsustainable debt? So let's say you decide to open a shop uh, and you take a bank loan for it. And let's say you are, uh, your EMI for that bank loan is 20,000 rupees a month. Um, your shop, after you paying, after you pay for the goods and the employees, you make uh, fifteen thousand rupees. So it's not like your shop is not making money. It's just that the debt that you've taken is is in excess of the extra money that you have to potentially pay your EMI every month. So that is so that your debt is unsustainable. Now, in a lot of situations, if you were able to reduce the twenty thousand EMI to fifteen thousand by talking to your lender and you would have a perfectly um, healthy, sustainable business. Um, doing that outside of the IBC in India is difficult. So challenge number one is you have management and promoters who are resistant to sort of having um, acquirers come in. Challenge number two is trying to negotiate with all the creditors and sort of come up with a sustainable debt package is also time consuming and number three issue is outside of the IBC is if you acquire a company and often what happens is then you discover um, once you go into that company, there are many issues that existed, which no one ever told you about. So there are unknown liabilities, unknown claims, people turning up at your doorstep saying that, look, this company owed me X, um, regulatory authorities coming in saying these are the non-compliances that happened in the past. And, you know, uh, it doesn't matter that you've just come in, you're still responsible for all of it. That was the third problem. The fourth problem is with listed companies. If a lot of time people want to acquire a listed company, but take it private, they don't want it to be listed after they've acquired uh, the company. Delisting in India uh, under SEBI regulations has very high thresholds. It's, it's not an easy process. Um, so that was the fourth challenge. So which is now what happens with IBC is that you can deal with almost all these challenges. Um, and therefore, it, it sort of creates this unique window of trying to acquire companies in India, which has attracted a lot of uh, bidders, both domestically and, and from abroad. Um, because what IBC allows you to do is as soon as a company is admitted, the existing promoters and management are no longer in control. It's, it is the creditors and the resolution professional who's in control. Through the IBC process, you can, uh, you know, there's a process in which you can settle all the um, creditor claims and it's binding on all the creditors. Your past unknown liabilities get washed out. There is a uh, procedure for delisting which has been introduced, um, which allows uh, for fast track delisting and making life easier. So all these issues that you have pre-IBC or outside of IBC, IBC has sort of taken care of, which is why doing M&A through IBC or acquiring companies through IBC is a fairly attractive proposition. Um, if you look back at the last three, four years, I think where IBC has worked really well is where there are um, businesses with physical assets. So a steel plant, a cement plant, or infrastructure asset. There, 
because even while the uh, process is on the the asset continues to sort of be run whether it's a factory or or a road where you know people still take the road pay the toll if it's a factory it continues to produce things and there with all these advantages it's been very attractive for bidders to come in and, and acquire it's not that easy to set up a plant in india you, you know that land acquisition approvals etc is an issue here is a great opportunity for you to come in and acquire a ready made plant and within uh, say one year or something you know run it as you like so so there has been great interest in these sort of entities where i think we've seen limited interest or people have struggled more is businesses which are um as an example is jet where you know once jet goes into sort of crp you would stop taking flights because you're not sure whether the next flight that you booked would actually sort of um take off or not the minute you stop taking flights they don't have money to pay their employees so the pilots and the crew start leaving um once the flight stops the the airports will say well you know the slots that were given to you not delhi bombay these are some of the busiest airports in the world so that the slots that are given to you we are not going to let them just you know um go unutilized we're going to reallocate it to other airlines so in in businesses where there's a lot of value which is intangible ibc pay, uh, may not be the best solution so that obviously is something i think that um even the government is conscious of and i think there are now efforts being made to sort of plug that gap but um for acquirers who are looking essentially at physical businesses with hard assets ibc has been a great uh, sort of proposition and we've seen some uh, a very decent track record of deals in the last few years in that space thank you for that sudeep because um, a lot of um, information that is available on uh, the idea of bidding and you know as you rightly put it is essentially just regulated mna perhaps and uh, because it is regulated there is this enforcement enforceability which which comes uh, with uh, doing a deal within the framework of the ibc and uh, generally india has been viewed as a not high on contract enforcement jurisdiction so the fact that the ibc can bring that credibility and allow mna to sort of flourish is a uh, quite an interesting uh, insight in terms of how attractive uh, a debt ridden entity can be uh, vis-a-vis its purchase or acquisition under the ibc regime now this kind of leads to the immediate question of um, how does the bidder make a resolution plan because in the past whenever there have been legislative frameworks we've always seen a lot of procedure that has been introduced into having um, any kind of scheme of arrangement or restructuring that is provided for under legislation uh, how has the ibc sort of made it easier and how does that bidder find the ibc resolution plan procedurally attractive okay so let's sort of um, go through the steps uh, once a company has been admitted into insolvency uh, you have a resolution professional but a public 
notice saying that you know this company is in insolvency if you're interested come and submit if you're interested in submitting a resolution plan come and uh, give us an expression of interest um so anybody who's that's a public sort of notice so anybody who's potentially interest is interested can come and submit an expression of interest so and you know so long as that party meets certain eligibility criteria uh, they are then sort of shortlisted for the process um so it's in terms of transparency and and just creating a market the public notice the invitation to parties i don't know through a notice obviously creates a transparent market where anybody who's potentially interested can come and submit a um expression of interest then once the expression of interest you know the criteria that you need to be um fulfilling in order to qualify um to submit a resolution plan and on the basis of that you're shortlisted and then you're given uh data room access you are given you know access to the company's management to Q&A through site visits um and this is again something which where rps should ensure that it's on a non discriminatory basis so they should give it to all sort uh prospective resolution applicants uh in the same way uh, again that ensures a level playing field so you know it's not like you have potentially more information than i do when we're building um based we also the the resolution professional is supposed to prepare an information memorandum which sets out that this is the information around um, the company and also here are the terms and conditions that you need to follow um in terms of the process that these are the things that you need to include in your resolution plan this is the date on which you need to submit once you have submitted um this is the process that we are going to follow uh, to evaluate and and sort of consider your resolution plan and eventually vote on um all of that is set out it's given in that information memorandum so again all of us get the same information memorandum we all know what the rules of the game are creates a lot of transparency in the process uh if in any ways you don't think that process has been followed obviously you can go and and sort of um challenge it before the courts so there is that legal protection which is there then finally based on all the information that that you've sort of looked at you can then sit down and sort of make the resolution plan um ibc has certain things which you kind of need to include in the resolution plan uh what are called mandatory contents of the resolution plan um so just an example you would have you know um that operational creditors need to be paid in priority Uh, over the financial creditors the dissenting creditors need financial creditors need to be paid in priority over the assenting financial creditors that you know what is the plan for management of the corporate debtor while the uh, while the plan is being implemented these are some of the um contents that you need to sort of necessarily include in your um plan but the more which is the art over science if anything about uh designing resolution plans and sort of writing them is your resolution plan is a is going to be in competition with other resolution plans it is a competitive process and so so and for you to win there are two elements to it one is you have to get 66% of the creditors to uh, vote in favor of your plan 
over everybody else else's plan who uh, also submits a plan for that particular corporate data the secondly it, it you know it needs to go through a code process and and so it can't be that you put in uh, provisions in your plan which eventually don't sort of um, uh, pass the master of the nclt so those are the two um, guiding principles so as to speak when you sit down and sort of start writing the plan um and and there are uh, various elements in that you need to think about the financial package that you are presenting to the creditors um how much are you going to give to the financial creditors how much are you going to give to the operational creditors um are you going to pay the entire amount upfront or will you let's say pay a certain percentage upfront and and will some of it be paid um at a later point of time if it is a later point of time then you know what what point of time will that payment happen will it happen in installments will you pay an interest on the amount that you're not uh, paying today uh what are you doing with respect to employees what are you doing with respect to shareholders um you know what is in terms of timelines what is your proposal so all of that uh you have to think about in order you know and then sit down and sort of write the plan um and you need to come up with a plan which you think is attractive enough for 66% of the financial creditors to say yeah this is the right plan and i want to vote in favor of it so you have to think about all these components and then come up with with a uh winning formula so as to speak you know that's interesting in one facet because when uh, you're sort of teaching the ibc and you're trying to talk about this whole idea of being able to resolve by finding a buyer uh, for the uh, uh, for the debt-ridden entity one of the things that uh, there's a tendency to forget that this resolution plan can also be rejected a committee of creditors can also say that i don't like any of these bids you know i can just reject them all and go ahead and uh, liquidate the entity so uh, can you talk to us a little bit about the parameters that a coc considers deliberates in addition to the aspects of who's getting what like is there a viability test or is it just pure commerce like what are the considerations there that's a interesting question um so the intent of the legislation has always been that it should be a viability test it's it's not supposed to be a pure auction of assets so it's not like the highest bidder um purely because he's put the biggest number should get it um it ultimately should be that you should look at the plan as a whole and see whether it's viable does it maximize value for everyone who is concerned with that company and on the, so the coc at at some level is supposed to be a custodian for every stakeholder so and, and not not purely people who try to mac, you know get the maximum money for themselves um so there is there is that intent or that spirit which is there in the ibc um at the same time ultimately if you look at judicial precedents courts defer to the commercial wisdom um so based on you know their sort of understanding and expertise ultimately whatever the cocs decide um 
in their commercial wisdom is something that courts would usually sort of defer to. The idea is that courts should not then sort of step in and, and take over that. So long as the process is broadly followed and, and you know, there is nothing which is manifestly wrong with the COC process, then we should sort of let the COC take the final commercial decision as opposed to the judicial system. Uh, because the bankers or the creditors, financial creditors are supposed to understand the, um, the company better um, and, and be able to take more rational decisions and based on their ex sort of, you know, expertise and experience in, in commercial matters. Um, the way the process works is that in your uh, information memorandum or, or the request for proposal, there is something called an evaluation matrix which kind of sets out that, you know, here are the points on which um, uh, your resolution plan will be evaluated. So there will be various criteria. So, you know, how much money are you paying to the financial creditors? Um, how much are you paying to other creditors? Um, your background, so there are qualitative parameters, you know, what is your track record um, of, uh, you know, turning around companies, uh, doing business, um, so there are these parameters which are set out in an evaluation matrix. And that's known from day one. It's in the information memorandum. Once the plans are submitted, the RP of the resolution profession first checks for compliance with IBC and, and the, the information memorandum. Once the plans have been sort of evaluated for compliance, then the RP uh, presents them to the committee of creditors. The committee of creditors then um, evaluates the plans, one, on the basis of the evaluation matrix, and two, uh, just looks at feasibility, viability, you know, of the plan. Practically, what happens often is that uh, the committee of creditors would negotiate. So if you submit a plan, the committee of creditors will call you for a presentation. They might have questions on some of the things. They might also ask you to change certain things. Um, and so there is a negotiation process which often happens between uh, resolution applicants and creditors. Then whatever is the final sort of negotiated plan or plans if there are more than one, then they are all put to vote um, in front of the committee of creditors. And whichever plan gets 66% of the vote is then uh, approved. And once the plan is approved, then the resolution professional submits that plan to NCLT uh, for its approval. That broadly is the sort of process um, that is followed. Now, I like the word approval because uh, as there is that kind of conundrum that needs answering in a way. Now, the NCLT's powers are limited is what is repeatedly said vis-a-vis -vis the IBC and uh, its use. And uh, as you said that the commercial wisdom is that of the COC. So if the COC approves the plan, an NCLT should technically not reject it. But it has happened that the NCLT has rejected a plan that has been approved by the COC. So talk to us a little bit about the uh, in-between and uh, why or how that happens. So this has been one of the areas which I think has been evolving. I think when IBC came in, uh, there was 
obviously not enough case law or jurisprudence around uh, resolution plans and the process. Uh, and so I think courts tend, tended to be more activist, more um, proactive in sort of, um, you know, looking at plans and saying, well, you know, for example, the, there have been various judgments initially where they said, well, the financial creditors are getting 100%, but the operational creditors are only getting 15%. That all creditors get the same treatment. Um, or, you know, why is this particular term of the plan like this? That, that doesn't make sense. And um, you should change it or revise it. And, and you know, there are, sometimes plans have been rejected, sometimes they've been modified, sometimes they've been sent back to the COC. Um, and in the early days, sometimes, you know, COCs are said, okay, this doesn't work. You ask uh, the resolution applicants to resubmit plans and then reconsider and then, then come back to us. Um, slowly, I think with, and I think the Supreme Court sort of took the lead on this and they started mo moving towards a direction where they said, well, look, courts should not be interfering that much. Um, and, and this whole commercial judgment wisdom uh, uh, sort of concept or jurisprudence started getting built where um, the, the later sort of precedent said, you know, these are fund, some of these questions are fundamentally uh, commercial and financial questions and we're not going to intervene. Um, alongside that, the other thing that has happened is that there have been also amendments from time to time to sort of deal with some of these issues. So the government has also been trying to, um, you know, change uh, or give guidance on some of these issues through either making amendments to the IBC or, you know, you know the sort of subordinated legislation, which then um, plugs those gaps. And once those gaps are plugged, then obviously it's no longer, a, you know, some issue which is open to interpretation. Um, just as an example, there was this the amendment section 32, um, which uh, 30 sub clause 2, which basically said that you know the whole question of what is fair and equ equitable distribution. And then um, the judgment basic the there's an ordinance that was brought about which um, uh, basically said that so long as uh, everyone is getting what they would have been entitled to had the amount. Um, so it's basically the higher of the amount which is proposed to be distributed under the resolution plan. Uh, if that amount was distributed as per section 53, which is the liquidation waterfall. So that's actually if resolution fails, then you look at liquidation. But the amendment basically said that, look, you take that waterfall and you take the amount that any resolution applicant is paying and you run it through that waterfall. Um, if you are getting um, the higher of either, once you run that amount, whatever you would have got under section 53, if you're getting that, or if the company went into liquidation um, and whatever amount you would have got. If so, if you're getting higher of one of those amounts, then it is fair and equitable distribution. Um, that was one way of the government and the legislators sort of, you know, setting out um, some principles, which then cuts out the discretion that the judiciary has on that matter. Otherwise, it was an open question, which was going through multiple legal battles on almost in every um, 
you know initial sort of uh, matter that came up before the NCLT. Every NCLT was faced with this question. So once you start providing, you know, sort of these principles and sort of inc incorporating them into legislation, then that also then cuts out the judicial discretion that that was there in the original, uh, you know, IBC and, and which we saw in the early days. Now, in that uh, kind of context, Sadeep, uh, one thing that is, uh, like you mentioned, a lot of clarifications and amendments have kind of been brought about. But the bottom line of bidding is essentially once your NCLT approves the, approves the plan, you're going back to contract. And can you give us a little bit of insight into how this successful bid turns into a contract and then the enforcement question? That's a very interesting question because what happens is as soon as the resolution plan is approved, right? Um, let's say at 5 p.m. on a Friday, you get an order from the NCLT saying your resolution plan is approved. Here's the judgment, which is on the website. Uh, under law, the IBC process, the CIRP process has come to an end. Um, you know, so all the, all the constructs of the IBC, the, the COC is gone. The resolution professional no longer uh, exists. Your moratorium, which you had during the insolvency process, that you know liabilities etc. could not get attracted to um, the co the corporate debtor, that is also gone. Um, so at five o one p.m. technically none of that is applicable. Practically no one is ready at five o one p.m. to actually implement the resolution plan. Uh, so your resolution plan, a good resolution plan, should actually provide for a construct which comes into play at 5.01 p.m. Um, so immediately after the resolution plan um, is approved and until you actually start implementing it, it may be days, it might be weeks, sometimes it's months, but what happens to the company? How is it managed? How does um, you know it function? So that is firstly a entire sort of framework which has to be created um, ideally in the resolution plan. So often people say there will be a monitoring committee, a monitoring committee, which may comprise of some creditors, some members of uh, some nominees of the creditors, some nominees of the resolution applicant, which will act and sort of steer this uh, company towards uh, the implement, towards the implementation of the resolution plan. They might appoint a monitoring agent or uh, or an insolvency pro professional again to sort of guide the company towards implementation, assisted in implementation. And then finally, your resolution plan will have all the implementation steps that the day on which you actually want to implement your plan. This is step one, this is step two, this is step three, and this is how it will be done. Um, if they have not already been set out, then again, post plan approval, you'll have to sit down with the creditors and say, this is how I'm planning to do um, these steps. So um, immediately after the plan is approved, there is a gap. That gap has to be ideally um, sort of uh, fulfilled by a framework which is included in your resolution plan because then that given that plan is approved by NCLT, it has legal sanctity. So that is how um, you should manage the sort of 
this gray zone between plan approval and implementation. And then the second step is to sort of set out the process on how will you actually implement. And the question of implementation, because obviously, again, you are, we are sort of now talking about contract. There are now cases where bidders post approval have backed out and the IBC doesn't really envisage a situation of penalty. So talk to us a little bit about what happens when a bidder backs out and the consequences of of it it's an interesting issue and i've i've heard two versions of it if you if you're looking at it from a creditor's perspective right um if a bidder backs out it you know they've run a process it, and, it, and any ibc process takes time and effort so you've done all the hard yards you've gone through the coc process you've gone through an ncrt pro process here's the uh plan which has been approved, um, technically should get implemented because it's a judgment, so it's law and, and, and so it should get done. Um, and if you allow for such a plan to be withdrawn, then it is a significant setback uh, to months of efforts and you know the prospects of the company. So from a creditor's perspective, obviously uh, they don't want to be in a situation where um, a plan is withdrawn um but if you look at it from a bidder's perspective um now while it should not be that you have the option of of implementing but at the same time there may be situations where genuinely the world has changed um you look at covid as a great example now let's say you uh, in uh, december a couple of months before when COVID was only something that we kind of read in the newspapers and the international section that, you know, people in China had this exotic virus. Nobody at that time was really thinking that it will sort of come into India, lockdown will happen. You put in a bid for a uh, airline and that bid got approved. Or you put in a bid for, let's say, a hotel in an IBC process and it got approved. By the time it got approved, you know, COVID happened. Now, all the dynamics, all the uh, of that industry have completely changed. You know, so airline industry uh, in what pre-COVID and post-COVID looks totally different, at least in the near term. Same thing for hotel and there are various businesses. I mean, these are two very obvious examples, but you can look at many businesses and say, well, it's, it's completely different uh, due to this. And, and COVID is a good example of how the world can change. Uh, it's not it's not that you submit the resolution plan on Friday and you get to implement it on Monday. Um, it, you submit the resolution plan and by the time your implementation comes, it's often weeks, sometimes months. And in between, there could be a lot of intervening events. So from a, a resolution applicant perspective, I think there is an, an equally valid argument that if the world has changed, then should I be held responsible for um, something uh, which you know I committed to six months ago? Um, and even under contract law, right, there are situations where you can say force major, material adverse effect, um, you, you know, which are all concepts which are supposed to deal with this issue that where things have changed beyond um, your control, then 
you should not be still held liable for for uh, to perform the your old contract so there are two sides of um, the coin the lower court seem to be saying that no you cannot withdraw the plan i think the matter is now before the supreme court they've stayed i think an enclat order which uh, said that you cannot cannot withdraw the plan and it has to be implemented they've stayed it and the matter is in the supreme court so i think hopefully there is jurisprudence that comes out in the in the uh, coming months um, or there is legislative interven- intervention but this is again one of those areas which i think needs addressing and it needs sensible addressing it it should be somewhere uh, balanced that while you know you cannot have optionality but at the same time if there are genuine circumstances perhaps then someone may be allowed to either not implement it or revise the terms to reflect the new reality now uh, knowing how interpretation is being uh, evolved in this uh, space genuine circumstances will also find a definition sudeep that's my that's my take as an academic but as just a parting shot sudeep uh, before i go to the thank yous um march is when suspension kind of uh, lifts and that's the hope there are you looking at more bidding and uh, more uh, m&a or you or you think more liquidation what do you think as a parting shot um i think there will be more bidding may not be uh, immediately um, but but in the coming months i think there will be more um, the problem right now with bidding is also that you know the bidders are themselves um, you know cash conservative while of course now i think we are kind of seeing a clear line of sight on how we go out of covid into the old normal or the new normal whatever you like to call it there is you know you know that vaccines are coming you know that where businesses would be so so i think there is renewed uh, interest um in in m&a um and if there are distressed assets uh, which are available i think we will again see um you know more people submitting resolution plans so so if if there are companies which come up through ibc i don't think you know uh, it will end up in liquidation if it's a good asset there will be people who are interested um because again i think you're now able to predict uh, with some obviously all forecasts could change but you could predict you know that what a post covid world will look like in the long term so that allows for people to sort of go back to bidding for assets if they're available well uh, that's a very positive note to uh, end on sudeep and uh, we will obviously look forward uh, to that positive note when when we continue on perhaps the next future podcasts so with that i want to thank you for being a part of this back to basic series and just give us a glimpse into what bidding is and what the process is and i hope to have you again as a speaker soon so thank you for spending this time with us thank you so much for having me over great chatting with you as always <laughs>